0: Good morning. If you would open in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. The book of Hebrews comes towards the end of the New Testament. As we open to this uh, magnificent passage, I'd like to provide uh, a bit of context for us to better understand both the book of Hebrews as a whole and this particular chapter as we approach it. So the book of Hebrews is an epistle or a letter uh, written to a Jewish Christian audience. Uh, Now the book of Hebrews is quite unique in how it is structured, in how it weaves together positive doctrinal teaching and instruction with warnings, exhortations, that it seamlessly weaves together. And compare this with a number of other New Testament books such as Ephesians or Romans that are very doctrinally heavy in the first half and then move to practical application and exhortation in the second. But the author of the Hebrews weaves those two elements seamlessly together throughout the entire book. Now the author of the book of Hebrews is formally anonymous The book comes down to us without uh, clearly identifying who the author is. But as we read through the book, there are several clues and hints that we get as to who this author might have been. When we read through the book of Hebrews, it becomes very apparent, very quickly, that whoever this author was, was steeped in the Old Testament. Through the sheer number of citations, allusions, echoes, Back to the Old Testament, the author was very, very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. The end of the book also presents the author as being a part of the apostolic circle. There are several uh, people he names there, of such as Timothy. We know Timothy's association with Paul. And so the book itself comes down to us as an apostolic book, teaching the doctrine of the apostles. And while there are a lot of theories, a lot of hypotheses out there of who the author of Hebrews might be, I think it's best to agree with the early church theologian Origen when he states that who wrote the book in truth, God knows. God knows who wrote Hebrews. Now, the purpose for writing the book of Hebrews uh, becomes very apparent uh, throughout the entire book and the theme of the book, which you could describe as the superiority of Jesus Christ. Christ is superior to the angels, to the old covenant sacrifices, to the old covenant priesthood. In all of these things, Christ is superior. That is the larger theme of the book of Hebrews. The author seeks to demonstrate the superiority of Christ by exhorting his listeners who, in this context were Jewish Christians who were being tempted and called back to return to the Old Covenant ways. They were being tempted to turn their back on Christ and go back to the Old Covenant sacrifices. And it's within that context, that purpose for writing, that we find this exhortation in chapter 6, this warning not to abandon faith, in Christ, and the author's exhortation to the congregation to press forward into maturity in Christ, who's their great high priest, holding on to God's promises for them. And it's within that context, the exhortation to not turn from Christ, but to press on to maturity, that we find the main theme of Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, which we could summarize as this. Beware the sin of apostasy by holding fast to the promises of God in Christ. Now let's read Hebrews chapter 6, this momentous passage. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and life-giving word. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, And of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, set before us we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of melchizedek let's pray this morning and ask the lord for his help to understand this tremendous text Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Would you grant us that we may in such a way hear this word, read it, mark it, learn from it, and inwardly digest it, that by patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A number of months ago, a well-known Christian hip-hop artist by the name of Brady Goodwin, also known by his stage name Fanatic, once a part of the Cross Movement, released a video saying that he was publicly renouncing his faith in Christ, that he was no longer a believer in the teachings of Christ and who he was. Of course, he's not the first person to do this. Over the last several years, there have been many people, so-called Christian celebrities, who have publicly renounced their faith in Christ, have turned their back on him. Some come to mind, such as Joshua Harris, the popular author of the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye, um, publicly announced he was leaving Christianity, abandoning his faith in Christ, divorced his wife. Marty Sampson, a well-known Christian songwriter. Bart Campolo, the son of popular Christian leader Tony Campolo. And while you may not recognize some or maybe even all of those names, I bet that there is someone that you do know that has turned away from faith in Christ, that has walked away from the church, has walked away from faith. Perhaps it's a son, or a daughter, or a grandson, or a granddaughter, a brother, a sister, maybe a friend, or maybe it was somebody who sat in this very church with us, who has since walked away from Christ, I'm sure we can all think of somebody that fits one of those categories. And you may be wondering, what are we to think about these people? How are, how are we to understand what happened to them? And were they truly a believer? And they just lost their salvation? Or did they merely profess faith outwardly, but inwardly weren't changed? Are they... A believer who's just fallen into a deep pattern of sin that the Lord will deliver out? We have these and, and many, many more questions as to what are we to think about these people who once professed faith in Christ and have since fallen away? And how are we, likewise, to avoid this sin of apostasy, of falling away that the author of Hebrews describes here? What are we to do to avoid this? And it's questions like this and more that the author of Hebrews seeks to address in our passage this morning. Now to set the context for understanding Hebrews 6 in particular, we actually have to go back briefly to Hebrews chapter 5, where the author begins a section of exhortation and a warning in chapter 5, verse 11. And then he continues that into chapter 6, which then brings us to the first point of chapter 6 this morning, which is this. That we must press on to maturity in Christ. We must press on to maturity in Christ. This is really what verses 1-3 through 3 in chapter 6 are all about. The section builds upon the one that came before it in chapter 5, where the author is exhorting his readers that, by this time, you, you should have been teachers. You should have been mature in Christ, and yet, You could not handle solid food. You needed milk. You needed soft food. And he's exhorting and and rebuking his hearers here that this should not be the case. That if you've been in Christ for a period of time, you should be growing and maturing to a point where you can handle solid food. So part of our maturing in Christ is growing to desire and love the deeper things of God. One, one could say the, the theological and biblical solid food that we should be digesting. And yes, you might have to chew it. You might have to work hard to chew it and to, to digest it. But that's what Christ calls us to, to maturity in him. And to, to illustrate this, this is the illustration that the author himself gives. Um, think about this question of why would you not give steak to a newborn baby? They can't, they can't handle it. They, they, do, they are not mature enough to handle solid food like that. They need soft food. They need milk. And so too is is it true of new believers that they need theological and biblical uh, milk. But put that on on this flip side too. That just while a baby cannot handle solid food, you know, theological steak per se. What would you think if you saw a grown man drinking baby formula? I bet a number of us would think that's kind of weird, like that something is off there, like why why is he drinking baby formula? Like no no no, give me give me the steak. Medium well, please. Like we would all think there's something strange going on here. And this is, this is the imagery that the author to the Hebrews is painting, that, yes, you should, if you are um, maturing in Christ, you should not be drinking merely the baby formula, but should be maturing on to handle deeper, more solid food. And if we've been in Christ for any period of time, years, decades perhaps, we should be growing to such an extent continually pressing forward in our growth, that we can handle theological solid food. And we see this in a number of places in Scripture. I'll just highlight one along with what we find here in Hebrews. But Peter writes this in 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's this continual exhortation to be growing, to press on, to not remain stagnant, but to be continually moving forward and maturing. And some days it it might feel like an inch. Some days it might feel like a foot, a yard, a mile. But the exhortation is nonetheless the same, to grow. We must press on to maturity in Christ. Now, how does the author of the Hebrews encourage us to do this? What, how can we move forward in maturity in Christ? This is what he says in verse 1 here. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now, it's crucial to understand that the author here, when he says, let us leave the elementary teachings or doctrines of Christ, what he does not mean is that we're to simply forsake them or forget them. But rather we are to build upon them. That these are the foundational core doctrines that we are then to build up upon. And notice the imagery of of a foundation, of of a building that he uses here. And when a foundation for a building is laid, do do you just stay at the foundation? No, you, you build the first story and the second story and the third story. But you need that foundation in place. But you don't stay at that foundation. John Calvin Huffley explains this when he writes, For as the foundation is laid for the sake of what is built on it, he who is occupy, occupied in laying it and proceeds not to the superstructure wearies himself with foolish and useless labor. In short, as the builder must begin with the foundation, so must he go on, with his work, that the house may be built. Similar is the case as to Christianity. We have the first principles as the foundation, but the higher doctrine ought immediately to follow, which is to complete the building. So we're not to forsake those elementary teachings, but we are to build upon them. We are to press on to the higher doctrine that follows from these. And, this is really the first step. If, if the focus of Hebrews 6 is to beware and avoid this sin of apostasy, this is the foundational first step of how to do that. We must mature in Christ. You want to avoid the sin of apostasy? Start by maturing and growing in Christ-likeness. Which then brings us to our second point this morning. After the author exhorts us to mature in Christ, to grow and to build upon these doctrines. He exhorts his readers to beware the sin of apostasy. This is really what verses 4 through 8 is all about. The, The author here describes what it looks like for someone to commit apostasy and what is characterized of them. Now I must admit uh, this section of, of scripture is potentially one of the most challenging, uh, not just in the book of Hebrews, but in the entire New Testament itself. Uh, it is a challenging set of verses. And there have been a number of different interpretations of trying to identify who these people are that are described in verses 4 through 8. And there's, there's three main interpretations. I'm going to run through each of them, just so you're aware of what they are and then we'll unpack the one that I think makes the most sense of the text and is drawn out of the text. Uh, So the first view here that some interpreters think of that describes these people is that this section is is purely a rhetorical device used by the author to exhort and warn true believers to persevere in their faith. But the people described here that they don't really exist. It's, it's not possible for this to happen, so it's merely a rhetorical device, an exhortation for them. I don't think that is the case, as we'll unpack later. The second major view, people would state that this simply describes believers, true believers who have just simply lost their salvation. They, they look at the text and they go, okay, it, it seems to be clear that this is just describing people who had true salvation and just lost it. And I think, as we'll see a little later on in this text, but the wider testimony of Scripture, I think, precludes us from reaching that conclusion. Namely, when you look at other passages and harmonize the Scriptures as a whole, I I don't think that's an option for us. That when the triune God of the universe sets his love upon a fallen sinner to redeem them, he cannot fail to accomplish that task. Did we not just sing about this? No power of hell or no scheme of man can pluck me from his hand. Do we believe that? Those words from that song come directly from the Gospel of John, Jesus' own teaching, where in John ten twenty eight he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul agrees with the testimony of Jesus in Philippians when he writes, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So I don't think the, the verses here, in light of the wider testimony of Scripture and the purposes of God to redeem a people for Himself, God does not fail. God does not fail to save any one of His sheep. And so I don't think. That's who's being described here. The third group, and I think this has the most merit considering this text in the wider book of Hebrews, the third group uh, of interpreters would say that this group of people described here in verses 4 through 8 could formally be called apostates, uh, people who professed faith in Christ, who were outwardly a part of the community of believers and of the church but failed to persevere in their faith. If you think about it this way, these are people who professed faith with their mouth, but did not possess faith in their hearts. They professed faith outwardly, but inwardly they were not changed. And there are several biblical passages in both the Old and New Testaments that can help us to understand the nature of apostasy of when people fall away, such as the parable of the sower and the soils. Um, We're not going to look at it this morning, but I would encourage you this afternoon, look at Mark chapter 4 and really wrestle with the teaching of Christ there of these different soils and and how those parables can help us to understand what the author to the Hebrews is saying here. So while we're not going to look at that, there is another passage, another group of people in the Old Testament that mirrors what is described here. And that's the Old Testament wilderness generation, that generation that came up out of Egypt, yet hardened their hearts and turned aside from the Lord. This is a a generation and a people that the author to Hebrews explicitly mentions earlier in the book in chapters 3 and 4. And there's several parallels that we're going to look at between what's described of these people in Hebrews and that wilderness generation that we'll see that help us understand what's going on here. So the first par- parallel here that the author, author describes is those who have been enlightened. If you look at verse 4, when the author states, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Those who had the knowledge of God brought to them Who heard the voice of the living God themselves. Does Does not that bring enlightenment? They were aware of the special revelation that God had given to them. And think about those people in the Old Testament wilderness generation. They had heard the voice of the living God themselves firsthand. They had received the Ten Commandments from the very finger of God. And yet they rebelled against him. They're making a golden calf and engaging in idolatry. And think about, in our context, those who sat perhaps in this very church and have heard the word of God read and preached week in and week out and the enlightening that happens when God's word is unfolded before their eyes and ears. And yet they have turned aside. The second parallel that the author mentions here is tasted the heavenly gift, continuing verse 4. This echoes back in the wilderness generation to the manna that was given from heaven to sustain that wilderness generation. So just as God fed that generation with the heavenly gift of manna, so too does he not feed us with the spiritual gift of the Lord's Supper? which many commentators believe that this this is a reference, could be a reference to the Lord's Supper. It's something we taste that is a gift of God. And is it not true that people who have professed to believe in Christ have partaken in that supper, who then later on renounce him? The third characteristic here is the sharing of the Holy Spirit. Again, this echoes the experience of the wilderness generation who had extensive interactions with the Spirit of God, and yet hardened their hearts against him. Look at two brief passages here that, that explicitly mention this. First is Nehemiah 9, verse 20. Nehemiah writes, You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 63, again emphasizing this point in talking about the wilderness generation. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he? who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit. He put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, and yet they rebelled. And is this not true of us? Think about those who profess faith in Christ, who are true believers. The Spirit indwells us. And as we gather here this morning, the Spirit is in our midst, because he indwells each of us. So those who do not possess true faith, sharing in that spirit, because it is all around in our covenant community here. The fourth parallel that is mentioned, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Does This not echo back to the, the first point of being enlightened, having this knowledge of God's will special revelation given to them and tasting of the sweetness the goodness of god's word and then the powers of the age to come that is mentioned here brothers and sisters is the church not a sweet foretaste of that think think about the the blessings that come to us even now that we experience the, the fellowship with one another that we have around christ the reconciliation that has taken place between us and God through the work of Christ and then us as believers, that that dividing wall of hostility has been taken down. And are those blessings not a a, a, a foretaste, a glimpse of the eternal state, of the age to come, the power of the Spirit that's at work? Now the individual who professes faith, but does not possess faith, and and might even join the church. They might participate in the ministry of the church and see all of these powers on display, see the grace of God that is at work in in believers, that changes them and sanctifies them. They could see all of this taking place and yet still not believe in their hearts. So that when they fall away, as verse 6 mentions, they prove what 1 John 2 says that we read earlier today. Where John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. In summarizing this section, commentator Dave Matthewson states this, It appears that in analogy to the Old Covenant community, the people depicted in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, are not genuine believers or true members of the Covenant community. Like their Old Testament counterparts, they have experienced all these blessings. But like the wilderness generation, they are hard-hearted, rebellious, and possess an evil heart of unbelief. Again, I'm going to say this again and again so that it sinks in. People who profess faith with their mouth but do not possess faith in their hearts. That is what's being described here. And before turning to the next section this this morning, I want to highlight just a single individual that we find in the Gospels that actually demonstrates what this can look like and what this looked like in the ministry of Jesus. Because there might be some of you Sitting here this morning, like, I just, I I don't see it in the text. I don't understand how a person could be merely outwardly a part of the church community and yet inwardly not believe. I just struggle to see that. And so we find a prime example of this in the Gospels, in the ministry of Jesus. In one person, Judas Iscariot. I mean, let's think about this for a second. So Judas, he is the clearest example of somebody who participated in all the blessings that are described in this text and yet did not have true saving faith. And think about those blessings. He saw Jesus do miracles. He was present for his teaching. He was sent out to to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons. He preached the coming of the kingdom himself, but did not enter it. Judas is the the clearest example that someone could outwardly appear to be a follower of Christ, but inwardly they have a hardened and unbelieving heart. Now, does this mean what Judas did demonstrates that he simply lost his salvation? I, I don't think so. I think it rather demonstrates that a person can seem to be a Christian outwardly. They can even participate in the blessings of the church, in a sin underneath the preaching of the word, and yet prove to be an unbeliever. They profess one thing with their mouth, but do not possess true saving faith in their heart. Now I must offer a, a, a bit of caution here in the sense that this text, this warning passage, it should not lead us to endlessly speculate over whether or not a person is irretrievably lost. The the text is not designed, and its purpose is not designed to do that. But rather, its purpose is to urge us, in light of this sober warning, because this is a, a sober and difficult passage, in light of it, It's urging us to run and cling to the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. That's what its purpose is. It's to point us, run to Christ, cling to him in salvation, which brings us to the third and final point this morning, that in light of all this, in light of this warning to beware the sin of apostasy, we must hold fast to the promises of God in Christ. We must hold fast to the promises of God in Christ. This is really what verses 13 through 20 that tremendous section is all about. Grounding our hope in the promises of God. And what does the author ground our assurance in? He grounds it in the unchanging character of God and of the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ. The author picks this up, this theme of speaking of things that belong to salvation. You see that in verse 9 here. And then he picks that up in verses 11 and 12. when he states, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, how can we be assured of that hope? How can we be assured that we will inherit those promises that are mentioned here in this verse? And the author pivots to unpack that. The reason you can be assured of your hope of salvation, that God will not fail, To save you is his unchangeable character. His immutability, if you want to say. And then to demonstrate this, the author provides a prime example in the life of Abraham. And remember, if if the audience of this letter is primarily Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back, they would have been very, very well familiar with the story of Abraham. And so the author, by providing this example of, you want to know why you can have assurance? Look at God's fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. That's what he grounds it in. He grounds it in the unchangeable character of God, that when God makes a promise to Abraham, he swears an oath by himself that he will do it. Now, the, the reason why this is so significant, that when God makes an oath, he swears by himself Let's let's think about this. For instance, when somebody is in a court of law and they're they're bearing testimony, or when somebody is sworn into to a particular political office and they're they're taking an oath that they will tell the the whole truth, nothing but the truth, or they're swearing an oath that they will fulfill their duties. What do they usually have their hand on? A Bible. Now, this might be changing in our day, but historically, that's It was a common practice that when you took an oath to tell the truth, you were placing your hand on the Bible, which signified that you were swearing by something greater than yourself, something that had a higher authority that could hold you to account for what you're about to do. And so the question then becomes, okay, well, when God makes an oath, what, what can he, in a sense, swear by? That there's no higher authority than him. And so he swears by himself. You could say that there's no higher authority than God. So when he makes a promise, he swears an oath, he swears by himself because there's no higher authority he can can appeal to. God's authority is is self-evident. It's self-attesting. God is the highest authority, period. Period. And this is good news. The fact that when God swears an oath that he's going to keep his promise to Abraham and he swears by himself, that is good news for you and I. That is good news for people who, as this text says, are heirs according to the promise. You might be asking, well, who are those heirs? This promise was given to Abraham that he would multiply him and bless him. Well, that promise... Those, the, the heirs according to that promise are believers. Those who have been united to Christ by faith. We are heirs of that promise that God made to Abraham so many years and centuries ago. Paul writes about this specifically in Galatians verse three, or uh, chapter 3 verse 29 when he states, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs of according to the promise. So because we are heirs according to this promise, we have a strong refuge to take encouragement from because we know God will keep his promises. It's in his very nature. He cannot lie, as the text says. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And then verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have a strong encouragement refuge of which we can hold fast to. We have an anchor for our souls. We have a sure and steady anchor that when we see people we know turn their backs on Christ and the potential discouragement that can set in, we have a firm foundation to run to, to stand upon and that's the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have a great high priest who's gone before us, And what does Christ do as our great high priest? He sacrifices his own body for our sins to secure a redemption that can't be shaken. He's reconciled us to God and is even now pleading before the throne on our behalf. He's interceding for us. And that is great news for weary souls. Now, as I draw things to a conclusion here from this text, I want to conclude with one point of application. And it's a simple one, namely that we should pray. And it might seem overly simplistic, but let's be honest, how many of us struggle to pray on a consistent basis? How many of us need this regular encouragement to pray? And I had mentioned earlier that this warning passage is is not designed to cause us to inwardly speculate about whether or not somebody is irretrievably lost. But rather, it's, it's to drive us to cling that much more closely to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And by doing this, it's when we flee to him as our sure and steady anchor that we have a firm foundation to stand upon that we're able to pray that we're able to come before the throne of grace and we should pray for these people. The people that I mentioned earlier that I am sure there are, for every one of us here, I am sure we thought of somebody who we knew or still know that has walked away from Christ and we should pray fervently for those people because They might might be true believers that are just caught in a deep pattern of sin that the Lord will bring them out of and you could be used as an instrument in his hand to do so. Or maybe they truly are unbelievers that the Lord will yet bring to himself. But either way, whatever the circumstances are, let us pray for these individuals fervently and faithfully that the Lord would draw them To himself. And as a final point of application, I want to speak to to those of you who sit here this morning and are really wrestling with your own doubts. That you might be sitting here with deep questions that greatly trouble you, and you're not sure if you can hold on to your faith in Christ anymore. I want to speak to you directly who are wavering, who have doubts and questions, and plead and implore you to find a mature Christian who can pray with and for you, who you can go to to ask your questions and to honestly seek out answers. Because, brothers and sisters, there are answers. Two, 2,000 years of church history has given us some of the greatest answers minds in Christianity who have wrestled deeply with these questions. The problem of evil and suffering. The nature of who God is and who we are. There are great answers out there. And I would encourage and implore you to to go to your elders. Go to one of the pastors. Come to me. I would love to talk with you and ask and discuss these questions with you and point you to very sound, solid resources to wrestle through this. But brothers and sisters, find a mature Christian who you can go to with these questions. And then to all of us, I say in conclusion, as we conclude, let's come before our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, that we, when we are tempted to get discouraged by another person falling away, another person, a friend, a family member who we thought was secure in Christ, turns their back on him. Let us run for refuge to Christ, who is our sure and steadfast anchor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you having wrestled with this difficult text. Lord, we ask and pray that you would give us the wisdom to understand your word. Lord, would you help us this morning to consistently pray for those individuals who have once professed your name and have since turned their back on you. Lord, help us to continually pray for them, to plead that you would draw them to yourselves. And Lord, we ask that we would be used in your hands to do this. Lord, help us to consistently come back to Christ, who is a sure and steady anchor, and take encouragement in him that no one will snatch us out of his hands. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.